on this edition of the podcast. Has Donald Trump achieved hegemony in Iowa? And a look back to the past for what might be a preview of the 2024 election. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. Boy, we are already knee deep in the holiday season. I know I still have presidents, presidents. I guess I have presidents on the brain. I have presents to buy. I have presidents to chronicle. Uh, I would like to announce to all of you that I am now booked. For Iowa, I will soon be booked for New Hampshire, Las Vegas, and Columbia, South Carolina. I will be in Des Moines covering everything that we uh, we normally cover during the Iowa caucus. I am very excited. All of those... All of those on-the-road feelings are coming back to me because, you know, to be totally honest with you... When we've gone out on the road for the midterms, you know, it's okay. I had a really good time going out to cover the New York mayoral primary. That was fun. But nothing is the primaries, right? Nothing's the primaries. It's it's just, it, it, it's its own world and nobody does it like Iowa. I have always defended Iowa when when the uh, thieves in the night have come to steal your glory, Hawkeye State, who's been there? A watcher on the wall pointing out the Visigoths before they can take down your treasure. And yet, I return. So uh, that's going to happen. I believe I'll be there from the 11th of January through the primary. And then it's a pretty quick flip right back out to... New Hampshire, but uh, information on that forthcoming. We will definitely do a meetup. We are definitely going to do a meetup in each and every of these states. So that'll be fun. Possibly wearing out wrongs with Heaton and Briny. TBD. But in the meanwhile, we have Iowa information to go over and. Before we get to that, I do want to talk a little bit about polls up top because something has happened that I think is statistically significant. We are officially now out of cataclysms. We are out of decision gates. We are out of game-changing moments, okay? We had a bunch of them. We had indictments. We had announcements. 
We had fundraising totals. We had debates. And throughout all of them, there is only one statistically significant trend. The rich got richer. Donald Trump continued to solidify his hold on the Republican Party. Now, you can say that is because he has run a good campaign. You can say it's because the other candidates have run particularly bad campaigns. You can say anything you'd like. But here's the reality. Donald Trump is very popular in the Republican Party. How popular? Well, I'll tell you. These are all of the national polls that have been taken in December. And more specifically, another couple of cataclysms, a class of cataclysms that I have not referred to. And that is candidates dropping out. Mike Pence dropping out. Tim Scott dropping out. Doug Burgum dropping out. Now you would think that that collective support would, you know, trend on down to some of the candidates that are not named Donald Trump. After all, if you're willing to support a Mike Pence, you're willing to support a Tim Scott, you're willing to support a Doug Burgum, then obviously you are looking for an alternative to Big Chungus. Well, not so much, according to these polls. Now, mind you, Donald Trump's support nationally, according to the Real Clear Politics average, has been somewhere in the 50s. Let me read you these three polls here, nationally taken this month, December. Emerson poll, from the 4th to the 6th, 64% of the Republican electorate. Haley was the second place there at at 14%. That's a Trump lead by 50. Reuters-Ipsos poll, taken from the 5th to the 11th, 61%. Haley-DeSantis tied for second place at 11. That's another plus 50. A 50 spot. 50 burger. And then the morning consult, taken from the 8th to the 10th, As we record this, that's two days ago, this poll ended. Donald Trump sitting at 67% of the Republican electorate. 67%, ladies and gentlemen, of the Republican electorate. Ron DeSantis at 13, Nikki Haley at 10. That's Trump plus 54. We're gearing up as we are less than a month away. We are about at the month anniversary of, uh, or sorry, the month countdown for Iowa. We're at the point now where the only question would be if Donald Trump were not to secure the nomination, death or a total meltdown in the concept of polling. Not even just 
did polls herd together too much? No, no, no. This would be, we might need to rethink numbers if Donald Trump is not the nominee. Because I don't know what else could happen. But again, that's national. That's national. That's not Iowa. And we all know that if national numbers were an immediate fast pass to the nomination, then we would be coming to the end of the second Jeb Bush term. So you got to play the games that are on your schedule. And the first game is in Iowa. And there is no more respected poll in Iowa than the one done by Ann Seltzer of the Des Moines Register. What I think will likely be Either her second or third to last poll is now out. She usually does one right on the eve of the caucus. And that's that's the poll that everybody's got eyes on to see if there's any kind of late movement. But I believe this will probably be the second to last one. Because I think she does one a month unless there's, you know, some some bonus one in the middle there. But something happened in that poll that has not happened yet, and that's Donald Trump exceeding 50%. Donald Trump is the first choice for Iowa caucus goers at 51%. DeSantis is in uh, second place with 19%. He's up three from October. And despite the fact that she surged in this state from 6% to 16%, Nikki Haley seems to have stalled out. Her number did not move since the last poll. Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie uh, are, are statistically insignificant. Despite the fact that Vivek says he is going to pull a double Grassley, double complete Grassley. For those of you who are not hip to the lingo, the full Grassley is going to all of Iowa's 99 counties. Vivek says he's going to do it twice. Good for you. Nearly half of poll respondents are still opening, open to changing their candidate preference. That's Iowa. You know, they want to be wooed. But at this point, if they're supporting Trump at these levels, it'd be hard to move enough people. Donald Trump has a tremendous perceived electability. Now, this is tracked with the polls that have come out recently nationally showing that Donald Trump is indeed, at least according to the polls, leading in almost every swing state, Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, even in some Wisconsin. But here's what's crazy about this Seltzer poll. They asked whether or not Donald Trump would still be electable if he were convicted of a felony? And the answer was yes, at least for the vast majority of respondents. Trump leads every demographic group tested and has grown his lead with first-time caucus goers. And Trump now surpasses DeSantis in caucus footprint and favorable rating. So footprint is an interesting uh, statistic that matters mostly to caucuses where 
you know, when you go to Iowa and you start to talk to people and you ask them who they're caucusing for, sometimes they'll just give you a bunch of names. But even if they give you one name, you can probably ask them, okay, well, who's your second, third and fourth? And they'll give you a second, third and fourth. So footprint is when you ask for all respondents in this caucus. Who you have on that list in the last poll for Ann Seltzer, Ron DeSantis led. So he did not lead the poll for number one for first choice, but he was liked the most by the most people. So maybe Haley voters had him number two. Trump voters had him number two. His voters have had him number one. Right. As an example. That's changed. Donald Trump now has the biggest footprint. And Trump supporters show higher commitment and enthusiasm compared to DeSantis and Haley supporters. Now, look. I listened to a lot of debate coverage uh, after my debate coverage from last week. I enjoyed a lot of it. You know, I already gave you guys my rant on the whole Trump won the election stuff. I think it's stupid and lazy. And I heard, you know, a little bit of that. But there was some good commentary. Shout out to Hacks on Tap. Shout out to uh, Ruthless, the Ruthless Variety Program. I think that those are good podcasts that I've enjoyed listening to throughout this process, largely because it's a lot of people that actually know the nitty gritty. Uh, and while the Ruthless Variety Program is certainly a conservative outlet, they make no bones about it, but this is a conservative primary. <laughs> so it makes sense to listen to it. They know what they're talking about. But there still seems to be this strain of, well, Donald Trump is winning because the other candidates are not attacking him. So I want to uh, go after that in two different ways. And here's the first. I believe Donald Trump is winning because he's running a good campaign. I think with every definable decision that you can look at for Trump's campaign, it's been wise. They identified their number one threat in Ron DeSantis and have carpet bombed him to hell and back. The Donald Trump social media team has been an unforgiving death squad. A thing that I thought DeSantis's was going to be. No, no, no. The OGs demonstrated why they are at the top of their game. They have limited their candidate. Donald Trump is not as freewheeling as he once was. He's, dare I say, at least for that man, on message. And by every possible metric, they seem to have their stuff together when it comes to Iowa. Remember, Donald Trump has only really contested in Iowa once, and that was in 2016. 
I visited the Trump headquarters there. It looked like a middle school play where all the parents realize that they need to buy costumes the day before. A lot of very passionate people that very much wanted to do stuff. But, you know, at that point, I was there in Iowa because we did the the game, The Contender, the game of presidential debate. You can still buy it on Amazon. It's like a Cards Against Humanity, but instead of saying offensive things, you debate each other as if you were on a debate stage using real quotes from real presidents and presidential candidates. See, I'm still doing the sales pitch. Anyway, what we wanted to do was go to Iowa and play a bunch of games of the contender with people in bars and restaurants. And each time that somebody won a hand, you'd be able to put a kernel into a jar of the candidate that you were supporting. And then at the end, we would count up all the kernels and we would give a big fake check to the candidate that won our little card caucus. Well, marketing, right? But meanwhile, we were going to give a free game to every one of the candidates that were running. You know, you have a lot of volunteers in these campaigns, a lot of long nights. Sometimes you need to blow off some steam. So here you go. Have a free game. So we went to each and every one of the offices and we got to see how each and every one of the offices were running. Here's a quick summary. Bernie Sanders' office was like a dorm room party where the professor's the most popular person. Hillary Clinton's campaign was the most paranoid place I had ever seen in my entire life. All we wanted to do was take a picture in front of a sign in their in their office to show that we had actually dropped off a card game. Not only would they not take the card game initially, they wouldn't let, let us take a picture of us next to their wall until we talked to somebody. It was them going up the phone chain. Hold on, hold on, hold on. And then somebody else calls somebody else. And finally, I get on the phone with somebody who's driving in a car and they're like, hey, what do you want? I'm like, we're just dropping off a card game and we'd like to take a picture next to the wall to prove to people that we dropped off a card game. Uh, All right, sure. That's the level of paranoia. But the Trump team was disorganized. You could tell that they had just rented this place out that they were uh, uh, operating out of recently. And no one knew who we should give the card game to. Nobody knew. We were just like wandering through the office and somebody, we talked to somebody, hey, we want to do this thing. We're trying to explain to them the bit. And they're like, uh, uh, Oh, I don't know. Talk to Jeremy. Talk to Jeremy. And then you talk to Jeremy. Oh, I, I don't know. I just got here yesterday. I don't know. There was a guy named Doug. Go try to find Doug. Eventually, we just left it in the lobby, and that was that. But that's not the case in 2024. By every available metric, the Trump campaign is professionalized in the Hawkeye state. And if that's the case, 
and he's leading with this lead, then that's a massive problem. So that's that's one side of this. I took the long way around. Here's the second thing I'd like to say about Trump's lead. You, every pundit, including the ones that used to run campaigns, I would love to hear how you run against somebody that's 85% popular in the party of people that you need to attract. Because do I think that anything Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis has done is insufficient? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, scoreboard is scoreboard. These guys have not been able to claw up and Donald Trump seems to continue to gain power. But the one dude who's throwing Molotov cocktails the way that everybody else wants to is Chris Christie, and he's doing worse than them. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but right now it quite simply appears that no one has been able to crack that code if it is at all crackable. This is your update brought to you by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Now, throughout all the other times of our four-year lunar political calendar, I will entreat you to support this program by way of TakePoliticsSeriously.com because we give you two bonus episodes. We give you one on Monday, we give you one on Thursday, and news travels fast this time of year. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm now booked to travel to Iowa, and I will soon be booked for New Hampshire and Las Vegas and South Carolina. We're also traveling to... At the very least, the cities of the conventions, if not the conventions themselves, depending on whether or not they allow us access. That all costs money. Normally, the people that are in these press pens with me when I go out to, you know, the, the watch the candidate speak to a person, they're all corporate journalists. I'm not not saying that in any kind of, you know, Howard Zinn way. I just mean they got credit cards that charge things back to another organization. Good job if you can get it. We're doing it the hard way, but we're doing it together, which means now is the time to support the show. Not only because it's more relevant, you're going to get more out of it than you ever have before, especially at the $3 level around the price of a cup of coffee. If you'd pay me for a cup of coffee each week, then just go ahead and support the show. But also because I, I'm going to be spending a lot. <laughs> we, we've already, jeez, eh, I, I, I forgot what the hotels cost in uh, uh, these, these places that don't have a lot of hotel capacity when all of D.C. and New York empty out into Des Moines. But... 
TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We are committed to making it a good bargain for you guys and making sure that you get your money's worth. And boy, howdy, are you going to get it over the next couple months? But here are the stories we didn't get a chance to get to. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Washington today is overshadowed by a complex political situation facing resistance from Senate Republicans. Zelensky's efforts to secure more aid for Ukraine are entangled with demands for immigration policy changes. The Republicans' lead negotiator has expressed skepticism about reaching an agreement before year's end, blaming the White House for poor communication. This deadlock suggests that Congress might indeed adjourn for the holidays without new Ukraine aid, leaving Zelensky without a firm commitment from not just a key ally, but the key ally. Democrats argue that Republican immigration demands are unrealistic and accuse them of jeopardizing a bipartisan foreign policy issue. Some even believe that Zelensky's visit is unnecessary, having been promised support during his previous visit in September. Zelensky also met with Speaker Mike Johnson, a significant hurdle to Ukraine funding, highlighting the tension between Ukraine's needs and U.S. domestic policies. Johnson insists that a stringent border security measures reflecting the GOP's internal shift against additional Ukraine aid The White House's attempt to link border security funding with Ukraine aid has complicated the situation. Republicans view this as an opportunity to advance their border policy agenda, but progressives and pro-immigration advocates fear that the Democrats might yield to GOP pressure due to Zelensky's visit. Senators across the aisle suggest that the outcome of this situation largely depends on President Biden's willingness to negotiate with the Republicans. This is a mess. I would have expected better from somebody that was supposed to be the congressional whisperer in Joe Biden, because a lot of this is his own making. It was Joe Biden who added the border to a big bill with Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel, as well as money for the border. Now, the money for the border that he wanted was essentially a bunch of money for some of the blue uh, states and cities that are dealing with immigration problems. But he's the one that added it. And now you've got milk toast Mitt Romney, retiring Mitt Romney, who could do whatever he wanted. He can say whatever he wants. And he's saying that the Democrats are insane if they don't think that fixing the border or, or, putting in things that will piss off the Democrats' progressive flank is not necessary to get Ukraine funding. So Zelensky sent his second-in-command and did a Zoom call last week. He showed up in person in D.C. this week. But there are some buttons that every time you press it, it gets less powerful. And I think we are at the terminal point of diminishing returns For Zelensky coming to D.C. and saying, my people are dying. And you are going to support Putin. Because the answer now from Republicans are, we can't give you a dime until we demonstrate to our voters that we are spending money here at home. Speaking of those House Republicans, they are set to vote on a resolution resolution today to formalize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. 
This move, they argue, will strengthen their ability to enforce subpoenas in future court battles. Key Republicans from districts that voted for Biden, who were initially hesitant about impeachment, have now voiced support for the inquiry. They argue that the the necessity for Congress to provide oversight and highlight the lack of cooperation from the White House in responding to information requests and subpoenas. The resolution directing three House committees to continue their investigations into Biden particularly focuses on the business dealing of his son, Hunter. Despite the general Republican support, there remains skepticism with Representative Ken Buck indicating opposition to the inquiry on the Democratic side. Representative Jamie Raskin is actively trying to persuade Republicans, especially those from Biden districts, to reconsider their stance, warning of potential political consequences. So it seems like the dance that Speaker Johnson has done here is to convince Biden district Republicans that opening an impeachment inquiry doesn't automatically mean they're going to take an impeachment vote. When in reality, that's what always happens. Normally, I would say that if this vote passes, then Joe Biden is going to get impeached. But with this version of House Republicans, sweet Lord of mercy. Anything's possible. And finally, former President Trump's campaign has strongly criticized, strongly criticized, special counsel Jack Smith's request for the Supreme Court to rule on Trump's immunity from federal prosecution. This request is part of Smith's efforts to ensure a March trial for Trump concerning allegations of his involvement in trying to overturn the 2020 election results. Trump's team accuses Smith of trying to prevent Trump from running for president in 2024, calling the move a quote-unquote Hail Mary and labeling the case as politically motivated. Trump claims presidential immunity for his actions related to January 6, 2021 and that Capitol riot, but this argument was previously rejected by federal judge Tanya Chutkin. Smith seeks a Supreme Court decision ahead of the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling, with Trump's campaign arguing that this is a rush intending to harm Trump and his supporters because it will be around when people are going to vote for him. (laughs) Trump has requested a pause in the trial until his appeal is resolved while facing multiple other charges in different states. With the turn of the calendar, not only are we going to be looking at actual elections, we're going to be looking at actual court proceedings. All of these cases are on some level going to begin during the campaign season. And I think I might have said this on the show before, but imagine if the Bill Clinton impeachment and the OJ case was also the same year as everybody involved in both of those things were running against each other for president. Cause that's the closest thing that I can compare what's going to happen next year to be. I mean, it'd be a good time. To sign up at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. 
Let's get back to the show. Let me tell you about a man named David Sosnick. David Sosnick was a senior advisor to President Bill Clinton in his fraught second term. He was also the campaign strategist for John Kerry's unsuccessful 2004 presidential bid and is now in the full-time strategic advisory business. But he's also famous in political circles for writing a yearly memo, a look ahead to the next year, for which he puts out publicly. I think that Sosnick is a astute political thinker, and I would like to read for you guys his look ahead to the 2024 election. And here's the big headline. And I almost don't even want to read this to you guys because I do a history podcast sporadically, and that's being kind, called Raise the Dead, which likes to compare our current political situation to things that have happened in the past. I have compared Donald Trump to the Kennedy family campaign tactics. I have compared Barry Goldwater to Bernie Sanders. I have compared LBJ to Joe Biden. I do that on this show too, but this is more of a storytelling thing. So I don't know whether or not this will be the framework for our third season of Raise the Dead about the 1968 election. Because the first season was about the 1960 election. The next one was about 1964. And if I'm going to complete my Nixon trilogy, the next is 1968. But I just want to read Sosnick here. I want to read directly from the man himself. This is Sosnick. During a time of so much instability at home and abroad, It's surprising that the basic political structure of the 2024 presidential election has remained so stable with such high levels of dissatisfaction toward both presumptive nominees. It's not impossible that at some point the political laws of gravity would overtake the status quo that is dominated. He continues, there is precedent in American politics for what seems like an inevitable matchup on an election cycle to change before the voting begins. At this point, in 1967, the country seemed destined for a general election in 1968 between Lyndon Johnson, an unpopular Democratic president, and Richard Nixon, who is perceived to be unelectable. Despite Johnson's unpopularity, he had been able to prevent any serious candidates from entering the Democratic primary until late 1967, when Senator Eugene McCarthy from Minnesota declared his candidacy. On the Republican side, the fear was so great that Nixon, who had lost the 1960 presidential election, spoiler alert for season one, Raise the Dead, as well as California's governor's race in 1962, would be the nominee that several candidates ran in an effort to prevent him from taking down the Republican Party in the general election. And while Nixon ended up having a relatively easy path to his party's nomination, Johnson was not so lucky. 
after receiving only 50% of the vote in the New Hampshire primary, as well as facing mounting concerns about his health, Johnson unexpectedly announced at the end of March that he was not running for re-election. And Sosnick mentions this, but I will say it in a more biting way. Yeah, Johnson was sick. He got he he, he had he had a case of Bobby Kennedy's running for president presidentitis. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson's mortal enemy. Uh, those two hated each other. LBJ knew he was beat. He got out of Dodge before it got ugly. I don't think that anybody in the Democratic Party is going to run against Joe Biden. But I was thinking about something. So we've seen a lot of polling recently on who can beat Joe Biden and by how much. Trump beats Biden. DeSantis beats Biden by less. Nikki Haley beats Biden by more. But we haven't seen, or at least I haven't seen, a lot of public polling about how Gavin Newsom does. How Pete Buttigieg does. How Gretchen Whitmer does. Beyond just looking at Kamala who, for whatever you think of her, would not offer a clean break from what's happened in the past, my suspicion is that if we are going to see any kind of chaos in this race on the Democratic side, and let me say again, I don't think we are. But if we did, it would start with those kinds of polls going viral to say, all right, Trump's been up on Biden since November. So let's say we get to March. We're still months away from the convention. You can still slide things around. Oh, baby. If it was going to happen, it wouldn't happen in the way that it happened in 1968. But if it were going to happen, that would be how it how it would go down. And Biden would never say he was, you know, he would never in a, in a, in a fair fight lose. He would pull an LBJ and say it was because of his health. Just saying that's that's in general how it normally goes. OK, we continue again with Sosnick. Rui Teixeira is a political strategist and commentator who has written extensively about the decline of working class voters support of the Democratic Party. In his analysis of the 2016 election, these voters swung 13 points away from the Democrats in Wisconsin, 11 points in Michigan and nine points in Pennsylvania. In the 2024 battleground states, the share of whites 
with non uh, uh, white non-college voters is above the national average in every single battleground state. Those are Trump fueled. According to, to Teixeira's analysis, 56% of voters in Wisconsin are non or sorry, white non-college educated, 53% in Michigan, 51% in Pennsylvania. There are 37% or more of those voters in Arizona and Nevada. Sosnick is dialed in that the meta of this election is about education. Did you go to college or did you ain't go to college? That's it. That is the most predictable way that you can look at this current political meta. College educated people believe one thing. Non-college educated people believe another thing. And at that point, it's only about turnout for each candidate to their demographics. We continue with Sosnick. Biden was the first president to ever get elected, or sorry, to get elected without a political base of his own since George H.W. Bush in 1988. In the AP Vote Tech or uh, Votecast 2020 post-election survey, Trump had a 19-point advantage over Biden with people who cast their vote for a candidate. Biden won voters motivated to vote against a candidate by 44 points. The December Wall Street Journal poll shows that support for Biden continues to be largely motivated by opposition to Trump. An overwhelming 51% of Biden's vote is based on opposition to Trump, compared to only 21% stating a positive reason for supporting him. This lack of a base continues to hurt Biden since there has been a significant drop off of support from his strongest backers in 2020. In December's Wall Street Journal poll, 24% of voters are considered disaffected Democrats with 7% switching to Trump and 16% undecided on who they will support. An early November poll in the battleground states and districts uh, by Stan Greenberg in the Demar- uh, Democracy Corps shows how significant Biden's decline has been with the Democratic base voters. Greenberg considers the Democratic base to include African Americans, Hispanics, Asians, LGBTQ plus community, Gen Z millennials, unmarried and college women. In those battleground states, Trump is beating Biden by four points with that coalition. Now, I'm going to add editorially Sosnick is taking this Democracy Corps polling and saying that African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, LGBTQ plus Gen Z millennials, unmarried and college women are the Democratic coalition. And they have been. And the problem is, is that I can name at least. Three of those African-Americans, Hispanics and Asians, which you've seen drift more. to. Republicans. So that coalition is fraying. Will it fray enough? We don't know. I still see a lot of numbers in these polls that show that Donald Trump is within like points in the Hispanic vote, points in the black vote. I don't buy that. I think that there are meaningful wins for Trump to take in easing the margin of how bad you lose Hispanic and black votes. But I don't think that we are at the point of parity or even really close. 
But at some point, that dam might break. I mean, we've we have seen enough strain on the wood. And here we go. Final Sosnick point. Talking about independence. The winning party in the last four election cycles carried political independence. The increased alienation of all voters toward both parties means that the number and importance of these voters continues to grow. The 2022 exit poll showed that over 30% of voters were independents, the highest percentage since 1980. The November NBC poll showed independent voters giving low marks to Biden and the Democrats and leaning toward Trump and the Republicans. Only 30% of independents give Biden a positive job approval rating, with only 24% believing that he has done a good job of managing the economy. These voters currently favor Trump over Biden by 11 points and also support Republicans by the same margin in the congressional generic ballot. Obviously, a lot of not great news. And if somebody that has been plugged into Democratic politics is invoking the name of LBJ's ill-fated 1968 campaign, I can take a wild guess and say that at a dinner party, if David Sosnick hears that somebody says Joe Biden should step aside, he probably doesn't correct them. In favor of the Democrats, Sosnick points out, is that the top four issues that single-issue voters say is the number one thing that they care about the single issue number one is abortion number two are threats to democracy two issues that democrats have won races on for the last eight years now unfortunately very close behind them is inflation and crime Two things for which the Democrats have no answer for. Oh, no, sorry. Wait, hold on. Immigration, not even inflation. Immigration and crime. So even worse. But Democrats have gotten the message. Put abortion on the ballot without a face. Put an abortion referendum on the ballot that is not tied to a Democrat and you will motivate Democrats and possibly independents to vote for it. Now we have never seen that strategy happen in an election year. Will you see split tickets? Will there be votes for the abortion protection and votes for Trump? A lot of big questions heading into next year. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can find me on X, PX3 tweets for the show and clips of the show. We're doing clips now, video clips, and my own personal thoughts that sometimes include other things. Justin R. Young. You can find me live on Twitch, px3live.com. Share this podcast with your friends and family, px3podcast.com. Like I mentioned, we are on the road. On the road again. 
to Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. We're doing the quad, baby. And that means any little bit helps if you'd like to kick into the show. PayPal.me slash payjury. If you have a little money in your PayPal, toss me a buck, five bucks, whatever you want. Venmo money isn't even real. As we've continually established on this show, prove it to me, prove it to yourself, prove it to the Lord. Justin-Young-20. Our cash app is PX3Cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. Again, that is Post Office Box 153184, Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news that we missed on our free podcasting schedule and our Titanic $10 tier. Get your name read at the end of the podcast like these five folks in the Titanic $10 tier, including ye old pinball shop. John, DP4Bongo, Sam, John, Edwin, Kathy, Mack, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Brian, Edison, Jeremy, a dog named Checker. Sarah Jeannie, Matthew, Dr. G, Neil, his nerdiness, Charles, Darren, Idris Arslanian, Berkeley, Stephen, Nomadic Terran, Molly's delightful demeanor, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Brad, D-Laser, Nick Wood, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Jen. Really? Chopper, Andrew, Adam L, my mom, Gloria, Niemeister, J, and Devon. Get the tables. That wraps it up for us today. Till next time, friends. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.